And he himself said, I feel more dissatisfied with my prayers than anything else, right? We should take prayer really, really seriously for a couple reasons, but um, not least of which is, is who we're approaching. So the question I, I'm hoping to answer, well, let me, let me tie this in first with, with where we're at in our series. We're in a series called Rhythms, and we've been walking through just what are the, the disciplines that each of us as believers should be establishing in our lives. And so we've walked through scripture intake, and then we kind of moved from intake to meditation. Uh, and in there was also memorization as a tool for both intake and meditation. And now, the, really the most logical next step to talk about is prayer. And actually, I really liked how um, one, one Puritan put it. Um, what we take in by the word, we digest by meditation. That's what we talked about really the last time we were together, right? What we take in by the word that is reading or hearing, we digest by meditating on it. And we let out by prayer. So prayer really is, it's, it's the first act following scripture intake. It really should be our first response to the word. And, well, I'll just leave it there. It should be our first response. And with, if scripture is a pipeline of God's blessings, which we've been talking about, right? Blessed is the man who just delights in the counsel of the Lord. Well, those blessings come down this pipeline. At the end of the pipeline, you can picture there being a valve. And that valve, simply put, is prayer. And so we could be in the word, but without prayer, it's like we're, we're not actually turning on the valve and saying, okay, Lord, I, I need you to, to bring me these blessings, okay? And so we enter into this, into this discussion of, of prayer. And I want to start with, with actually a question, going back to this feeling that we, we all feel often discouraged about prayer. But where does confident prayer begin? That's the question I want to I try to answer tonight. Where does confident prayer begin? If you want to be confident in your prayers, where does that start? For that, I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to start in, uh, in verse 19. I really think this is the question we need to answer first. Because so often we just jump right into praying. Um, but first we need to ask, why should we have any confidence that if we get a hearing with God Almighty, that he's going to hear us? Or that we, should get, that we have a hearing with him in the first place? And if we do, do we know what we're going to say in that hearing? We need to ask this question, where does, where does confident prayer begin? And the answer to that, simply put, is it begins with a bath in the Messiah's blood. Where does confident prayer begin? It starts with a shower. It starts with a bath in the blood of the Messiah. And that's what the author of Hebrews is going is to tell us. So here we are. You guys there. This is uh, Hebrews 10, starting in verse 19 here. So we get, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So I just want to point out, verse 22 is the command. Let us draw near. And I would include in that prayer. 
That might, not, that might not be everything that's included in that drawing near, but it certainly includes it. So let us draw near. And I want to just point out that really this author is emphasizing something about confidence in our prayers. He starts out by saying, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, and then when he gets to the command, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, in full assurance of faith. How many of you pray constantly with that full assurance of faith, that confident prayer that says, I know God is hearing me? That's what he's talking about, and that's what he's urging us to do. Well, what's the basis of such a prayer? The basis is given by this, these words, since. Okay, you see that? It might be slightly different in your translation. But here we have since, and we actually get two senses. We're going to focus um, mostly on the first. Oh, that really does bad things to my, uh, to my writing. So here's our command. Let us draw near. Full assurance. So we have two senses. One, two. And these senses act as reasons for, for our confidence. Okay, so if I were to go to my wife and say, you should read this book, I'm going to give her reasons why she should read the book, okay, because it is so engaging, it is so applicable, it will change your life. So if I was structuring it like this author has structured it, I'd say, okay, Kate, since this book is incredible, it's so interesting, and since it has the power to change your life, Go now and read this book. Don't delay. Okay? Okay. So I just gave reasons for why she should read the book. Okay. Since. Here's our reasons for drawing near with confidence. Why is it that we can draw near with confidence? Since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Well, he's kind of assuming that we have confidence, but he's going to give us why we have that confidence. Since we have confidence by, and here it is, by the blood of Jesus. That's the first, actually really, that's just the answer to our question. By the blood of Jesus. And that's why I'm saying the answer to where does our confident prayer begin? It begins with a bath in the Messiah's blood. Hold up one second, though. I want to actually walk back to what, is he, what do we have in confidence to enter? Enter the holy places. Well, if you are familiar at all with Hebrews as a book, you know that this has a lot of references to the Old Testament Old Covenant, the tabernacle, the temple, all these things. So we're just going to talk for a second about what, you, what is meant by these holy places, okay? So I have, let's see, maybe I have. There's Facebook. This is really, this is really dangerous. All right, here we go. Oh, that was a Bookman impression. Um, present. Present. Okay. So the author of Hebrews has in mind, and I want to show you this through the text as well. He has in mind this picture of the tabernacle under the old covenant of Moses. And he's going to use a lot of imagery from this tabernacle. So I just want to take a second to describe it and, and talk about it with you. So we're going to kind of go back and forth between these images and actually something that the writer of Hebrews talks through a little bit earlier in the book, in chapter 9. So I want you to actually go in your Bibles to chapter 9, okay? And I'm going to go there as well here. Let's see. I'm just going to scroll up. 
And actually, I'm going to start there and read from, from verse 1 of Hebrews 9. Because this gives us our context for the imagery that the author is going to use. Now, this is chapter 9, verse 1. Even in the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, tabernacle, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And then he says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. He just spoke in some detail about them, which is helpful to us. So he has in mind this. Okay, now this is a replica that's, that stands in Israel. Has anyone been to this replica? This actually is something, is something okay, yeah, Asher's been there, um, that you can go and see, really helpful. I personally have not. But I'm going to flip back and forth between these two images. Okay, if you were to, this is just the, the layout, the ground layout of this tabernacle. And what I want you to see, and probably just remind you, I know a lot of you are familiar with this already, but as, as far as the layout of the temple, you had the outer court, okay, where, I don't know, I don't think I can draw on this, but um, if you see the arrow going in, that is where worshipers would enter, right? And then you have the altar where burnt offerings were, were uh, offered up. And then as soon as you hit those yellow dots, those are those pillars on the outside of the tent, okay? And so now you're entering the holy place. And there are those items that the author of Hebrews just mentioned. You can look down. You can see the table with the bread, the menorah, the altar of incense. And then you have a veil, a curtain. And we're gonna, that curtain's about to be very, very important if you didn't notice it in our passage already. And that separates the holy place from the holy of holies, okay? Now, moving forward, as we get into this holy of holies, this is important. Listen to me here. Because I didn't understand this for a long time. And it's actually really helpful. The Holy of Holies has the Ark of the Covenant, all right, or at least it was, it was supposed to. Originally, it did. The Ark of the Covenant looks something like this, okay? When you, when they, when you read that word cherubim, they are described in some detail as having these wings that, that come out like that, okay? I'm not sure the degree of the, uh, the detail, the accuracy past that, but when in Scripture, when it talks about the Ark of the Covenant, it talks about it as a throne, Okay, so this, you should, when you see this, not only should you see a big box with poles in it, you should see a big chair, essentially. Okay, and when Israel conceived of where God was among them, they saw God enthroned above these cherubim. Okay, and th that's where you get this, this phrase, the Shekinah glory. Basically, right above those cherubim, you'd see the Shekinah glory, the, the presence of God manifested in this bright light, okay? Now here's just a couple of verses that um, a quick search found. Um, so in 1 Samuel, um, there's this reference to, they carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts who sits above the cherubim. So whenever you see that, that phrase, I don't know, for me, that could be kind of this strange phrase. I'm not sure where it's coming from, what it's talking about. It's actually talking about a very real and physical thing. And they're thinking of, okay, in the temple that we know of, and in that holy of holies place, there is this Ark of the Covenant, and above those cherubim that are on the Ark, that's where God sits on his throne on earth, okay? 
And you can go on, you can see these other, other examples. He's enthroned above the, the cherubim, okay? The next point to be made about this, and what, where the author of Hebrews is going to go with this, uh, how do I, here we go, is that the earthly tabernacle was a, the, the word that you'll sometimes use is, is a copy, but essentially a, uh, almost like a physical representation of a spiritual heavenly reality. So yes, this is where God is enthroned on earth, but it represents something far, let's just say far greater glory, of far greater glory in the heavens, okay? It represents the throne room in heaven. So if you, if you jump just down to verse, uh, I think, I believe it's here in 11. So he's talking now about Christ as our high priest. And he says, Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, or when Christ appeared, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with his hands, that is not of this creation. Okay, he's talking about a heavenly tent, a heavenly throne room. He entered once for all into the holy places. Now he's talking about a heavenly place and not an earthly one. But as far as our imagination, he's using, and, and intentionally so because God gave it to us, this picture, this earthly picture, so that we can picture the heavenly reality. Are you guys following me on that? I see some, like, some confused faces, but overall some nods. So the tabernacle is this representation of what's going on in heaven. And that's always the case with these, with these sacrifices, right? They become a picture of what Christ is going to do, ultimately. And so now, the author of Hebrews is bringing this out and saying, okay, our Christ is our new high priest, and he is entering the holy of holies in heaven. But we're still using a lot of the language of the earthly place, which represents that. Uh, I, think, I believe we have one more text. This is down in verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Because that's what a priest does. He represents those, uh, he represents his people before God and vice versa. Okay, so that was a, a bit of a large excursus. But I think it's really important because when it says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, what the author here has been making, the argument he's been making is that this, this holy place, he's talking about the holy of holies. And he's saying we can have confidence to enter into that place through what? By the blood of Jesus. Now, verse 20 is going to explain in greater detail what he means by the new, well, what he means by the blood, okay? So if, when you see this, um, another by here, you can think of it like that is, okay? The blood of Jesus, that is, which is the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. So he's saying the blood equals a new and living way through the curtain. All right, this is where I need you to put on your imagination station hats, all right? Everyone putting on your imagination hats? Okay, thank you, Lewis. I really wanted the the, the physical representation of the spiritual reality for, um, for that. That was great. When we get this curtain, first of all, I want you to all picture the Holy of Holies, and I want you to picture that curtain. Okay? You, you guys got it? You're standing in the holy place. You're looking toward the Holy of Holies. There's a curtain that separates you from God. Okay? From God himself enthroned on the cherubim. Okay? When it says, the blood of Jesus, 
is a new and living way opened to us through the curtain, then what I want you to picture is a way being a door, okay? Or maybe you can picture a portal. You're going to picture a portal being opened in that curtain, okay? Now, the reason I say portal is because it's interesting because what he's saying is that living way is the blood of Jesus. So now, I want you to picture that, that way that has been opened through the curtain, and we know that actually that the curtain was literally torn in two. This is a reference to that. So the curtain is being torn in two, and if you were to pass through that, you are passing through, essentially, a pool of Jesus' blood. That's the image that he's actually giving us here, right? By the blood of Jesus, the new and living way opened for us through the curtain. All right. I told you guys would have to be using your, your spatial visual imaginations here. How many of you read some C.S. Lewis ever? Okay. I think, at least for me, and how many of you actually read The Magician's Nephew? Technically the first. Okay, then that's, that's helpful. In that book, for those of you who don't know, there are two rings well, multiple, but there's two colors of rings. They're essentially magic rings, okay, that these two children find. And when they activate the rings, they are taken to a place between worlds. It's essentially a world of portals to other worlds. And those portals are pools of water. And each pool represents a different world, all right? And they have to literally jump into this pool wearing a certain ring, and then they go through the water, and they end up in the other world. I don't know if you guys remember that. Again, using your imagination, I think that's what this author is kind of picturing as, as a hole in the curtain. It's like you have to go through this pool of Jesus' blood because this blood is sprinkling us clean and washing our bodies. Okay, So if you're passing into the Holy of Holies, you are now stepping through a pool of blood and you are dripping in blood as you enter into that Holy of Holies place. It's a graphic image, and I think that we should follow the author here in, into that. When we take communion, we say, as Jesus told us to say, right, this is my body broken for you. And it says right here that the curtain, that is through his flesh. So just one more image, if you want to compound it, the curtain becomes his flesh being torn apart for us. And then, so, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. That becomes the entrance into the Holy of Holies. And we come through that literally dripping in the blood of Jesus. So, we have to pass through his body, soaked through to the core with his blood, and then we stand dripping before, before God. That is what the author says is our confidence. That's why you can have confidence when you pray to God is because you are dripping in Jesus' blood. Interesting, I think. Now, we have a couple of, of just kind of implications, applications from this, okay? Number one is that what this means is if you have not trusted in Jesus as your Savior, you have no reason to think that God is going to listen to your prayers, this way is exclusive. 
the author of Hebrews makes that really clear. And so if you have not trusted in Christ for your salvation, if you have not admitted your broken dirtiness, and that if you were to find some other way into that throne room, you would be dirty before God and have no, no reason that he should listen to you. You admit that. And you say, okay, God, I will go through your chosen means. I will go through your door. And that is the broken body of Christ and the blood that had to be shed to clean me. If you don't go through that, then you have no plea before God. It's exclusive. I want to just point you to a passage. There's actually multiple passages that are very sobering in this respect. Um, we'll, we'll go here. I, you, can, you can turn there if you'd like. Isaiah 1 um, and verse starting in verses 12, just about. And he says, this is God speaking to a rebellious Israel. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. And then verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Okay, that's a problem. Verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And he goes on in verse 18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So there is a promise from the Lord, even here, as he's condemning them, that there is a way for them to become clean. But we have to be cleaned to be heard. And I think that we just have to remember that. Without the blood of Jesus covering us, we are no more than an intruder into God's courts who has no right before the king, only all of the offenses against the king, and the king has nothing to give us except for retribution and, and judgment. On the other hand, I want to ask one, one question and give kind of three answers to it. And we're going to go back to um, the slides for this. And the question is this. Why does being covered in Jesus' blood give us confidence before God? This is kind of the question we still have to answer, I think. And I'm going to give you three, three principles, essentially. So why is it that being covered in Jesus' blood, once we go through that door and we're, and we're standing or kneeling before God, why does that give us any confidence? Why should it give us any confidence? So number one, we can have confidence in God's forgiveness because of the sufficiency of the sacrifice that covers us. We can have confidence in God's forgiveness. For this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to back to Hebrews, and actually just a little bit before we uh, our, our passage. So Hebrews 10, verse 10, you can see on the screen here, I'm going to just back up just a little bit to verse 9. Actually, no, I'm not. I'm going to start at verse 10. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What the author is doing is he's contrasting sacrifices. And he's saying the Old Testament sacrifices, not sufficient to cover sin, really. And they had to be made over and over and over again. The sacrifice of Jesus, perfect, and once and for all. And so in verse 14, 
by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. He has perfected by a single offering those who are being sanctified. So this is something I hope that those of you who are believers in the room, this is kind of second nature. You're like, yes, I understand. I need to be washed by the blood of Jesus. But what does this mean in terms of practically for, for prayer? Oftentimes we can come before God and start to think to ourselves, is God going to hear me if I, you know, maybe I, maybe I start to pray and then I think to myself, shoot, I, uh, I haven't been very good today. I haven't even thought about him today. Maybe he's not going to listen to me, right? Maybe I need to basically earn the right to be heard by God. And when it comes to being washed by the blood of Christ, we can, we can think of it like not entirely. Like at most, we have to do some scrubbing too. We can, we can be washed by his blood, but once we get into his presence, we might have to like scrub up a little bit. But that is, that is not how uh, scripture teaches about it. Do you guys know those ads that are like a, I just recently saw one about a vacuum, you know? And they, there's like a million infomercials out there about like a cleaning solution or a vacuum that just does absolute wonders, right? And it's just been around since the beginning of vacuums and TV apparently. But they like sprinkle like a perfect little trail of stuff and then they like, do a vacuum over it, and they show how it perfectly wipes it away. And we all just, just like shake our heads at that because it's ridiculous. Because you know, I'm like, okay, yeah, sure, you sprinkle this nice little patch of dirt. But if my kids like trampled that for two hours into the, you know, deep into the carpet, then that vacuum is not going to get it all out, right? I don't know if you guys have the same kind of thoughts. Sometimes we treat we treat the the sufficiency of the blood of Christ kind of like that. We're like we know it's a really really good cleanser, but does it really wash me absolutely entirely? Yes. Yes, it does. It's the only thing that can absolutely do that. And we have to trust that. And with that said, when we come before God in prayer, we need to be actively asking for forgiveness of our sins and reminding ourselves of that reality. Because if we do have unconfessed sin in our life, there is also scripture that points to the fact that that can be a problem and a hindrance to prayer. So, we need to be washed in the blood. It's, it's sufficient, and we have to take hold of it, if you will, to have our prayers answered. So, first of all, we can have confidence in his forgiveness just because of the sufficiency of the sacrifice. Secondly, we can have confidence in God's character because of the cost of the sacrifice. So if you are literally dripping in the blood of Jesus, there's no getting around the fact that God has done something extreme to give you access into his presence. One of my favorite verses is Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The argument that's being made there is, if you look back, and you think back to what Jesus did for you, and, and as importantly, what the Father did in giving his son, then you're going to understand something about God's character. That's going to give you great confidence when you enter into his presence with some, some any kind of a request. Because you say, God has already given me so much. And the more that I meditate on that and understand that, the more I'm going to have confidence to approach him and ask for something else. And trust that he's going to give me what's truly good for me. And we're about to get there. So we all know the examples of like the Israelites who were just the most ungrateful patch of people um, and there's a reason God chose a really 
hard-headed people just to display his grace. But when he, they, they, they leave Egypt, right? And they're just grumbling constantly. And, they, and there's a time, multiple times, I think, that they say to Moses, have you, have you brought us out here just to let us die? And it's kind of like one of my kids coming to me and suddenly just being like, you haven't gotten me lunch yet? Are you going to kill me now? Like, when have I ever withheld lunch from you? That's ridiculous. And so, you know, it's like they just did not remember the fact that God brought them out of Egypt by sign after sign after sign after sign. And God tells them that. Have you forgotten any of this? All of this? And yet, when we go to God in prayer, so often we're like, God, I'm not sure if I can trust you. And he says, I gave you my son. The only reason that you have my ear is because you are drenched in his blood. And if we actually pause to consider that, it's going to give us incredible confidence. Because our confidence is not in the fact that we're asking for the right thing. Our confidence is in who we're asking. We're asking the God who already gave us his son. We're asking the God who already gave up the most precious thing and subjected him to the absolute worst thing possible for on our behalf. And that kind of leads to uh, the final reason we can have confidence or, or area we can have confidence in God's promises because of that character. So he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? That's a promise. He's going to give you all things. And so we can have confidence in, in, that, in each promise that he makes because of the fact that we're covered in this blood, right? And, and, and that's going to be a reminder to us. It's like, um, it's like we are covered in the constant evidence. It's like that song that our, my God's a, a promise keeper. You guys know that song, right? Um, how does it go? Somebody? Musician? You are a promise keeper. Your word will never fail. Will never fail. Thank you. <laughs> my heart can trust you, Jesus. I won't be overwhelmed, right? But that's, that's the idea. He's a promise keeper, and you're covered in the evidence of, of the principal promise he made, which is, I'm going to make a way for your sin. I really like the quote. Um, this is actually Spurgeon. Uh, On the throne of grace, sovereignty has placed itself under bonds of love. God will do as he wills, but on the mercy seat, he is under bonds. Bonds of his own making, for he has entered into covenant with Christ, and thus into covenant with his chosen. Though God is and ever must be a sovereign, he never will break his covenant, nor alter the word that has gone out of his mouth. He cannot be false to a covenant of his own making. Moreover, on the throne of grace, God is again bound to us by his promises. The covenant contains in it many gracious promises, exceedingly great and precious, such as, ask and it shall be given to you, seek and you shall find, knock and it shall be opened unto you. Until God had said that word, or a word to that effect, it was at his own option to hear a prayer or not. But it is not so now. For now, if it is true prayer offered through Jesus Christ, his truth binds him to hear it. And it's the sweetest thought of all, that every covenant promise has been endorsed and sealed with blood. And far be it from the everlasting God to pour scorn upon the blood of his dear son. Often we come to God with, with fears and anxieties and doubts. And those fears and anxieties, doubts, 
boiled down to doubting the goodness of God and to doubting his promises. That's what they boil down to. And another thing that Spurgeon said is, who will doubt the word of the king? Do you have any right to doubt the word of the king? I want us to all, I want to I do something, hopefully just to ingrain this image, okay? I want everyone to get, if, uh, assuming you're able, get on your knees in front of your chair, okay? Again, too often I think that we, we don't approach God the way that we, that we ought. <laughs> and I think a really a helpful place to start right now, first of all, posture is important. Uh, at least it's very useful. Because this, it's kind of a humbling place to be, <laughs> as we should be, all right? And so now I want you to, to close your eyes and imagine yourself about to begin in prayer. And I just want to urge you to consider that when you kneel in prayer, your only right to stand or kneel before God is that you are covered in Jesus' blood. And with that, you can have incredible confidence before God. Because no longer do your sins count for anything. Because they have been dealt with. And moreover, you can look down at the blood that's covering you and be reminded of the goodness of the character of the God who you're kneeling in front of. And you can be reminded of those promises that he's made to you. And that's the basis where you start from with prayer. All right, you can all look up, take a seat again. I want to finish just with uh, a text of scripture and a challenge. Um, in Isaiah 30, 15, there's this, this passage that says, In returning and rest you shall be saved. Quietness and in trust shall be I'm losing my, my pack, but that's okay. I'm going to read it one more time. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. When we pray like this, when we pray just conscious of who we're praying to and why we're even able to pray, then when we get up from praying, we're going to have this quietness and this trust that we long for with the Lord. Because we're going to trust, you know what? God heard me. And moreover, he will not withhold any good thing from me. He's going to work everything for my good. And he is, he is a good father. And he's not going to withhold anything good from me. And that's going to give you the peace that surpasses understanding that's spoken of in scripture. And it's not dependent on the exact answer to prayer that God gives you. He will answer you. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. That is our strength. I have a lot more that I would love to say about prayer. And I think, uh, I hope, I'm going to have an opportunity um, in a couple weeks actually to return to the topic because there's so much that we can talk about. Um, for now, I would just challenge you to set aside 30 minutes to an hour um, this week. And again, what we're trying to do with this summer is, is not just think about disciplines, <laughs> but to put them into practice, right? And so set aside some time and, and 
and follow this progression. Uh, you can go to one of these, these passages of Scripture. So Hebrews 10 is a great place to start, where we, where we just were, starting in verse 19. And first, just spend time in the text. Meditate on those words again. Walk through them for yourself. Walk through the context for yourself. Remind yourself of, of what they mean. And then sit with those, right? So, so you're going to take that scripture in. You're going to chew on it and meditate on it. And then from there, with your last 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, however much you have, then move into prayer based on that text. In Spiritual Disciplines by Donald Whitney, he has an, an incredible section that really just commends starting with meditation and letting that be the fuel for prayer. It's really powerful. And I would just commend that to you. If you find yourself like me saying, okay, I'm going to pray. And let's say that you actually set aside time for it and you sit down and you just try to start praying. It can be really hard to start the car. It can, it can feel like your mind is in all sorts of different places. If you start with scripture and then you intentionally move from that into prayer, suddenly it's like, it's like the Lord uses scripture to get the fire burning and then give you tracks to run on with your prayers. And it's beautiful. It's really wonderful. So I'd encourage you again, for the practical application. Wherever you're at with prayer, I would just encourage you to try and take the next step of, of growth with that discipline. We're going to close today in groups. And what we're going to do is I would just encourage you to get in groups and, and pray through these three things, starting simply by, by thanking the Lord for each of these things. So thank God for the forgiveness that he's given us through Christ. Thank God for his character and then call to mind some of the promises that he's made and just thank him for that. And then you can move wherever you want to in, in, the, in your groups, but that's the primary thing. I just want to get practice of actually praying through these things and reminding ourselves of what we're doing when we pray. And then after just a few minutes, we'll, uh, we'll come back on, invite the band back and we will sing one more song. All right, so yeah, get in groups as, as you please uh, and uh, we'll come back in a few minutes.